Now, some of you um, will remember this from, I know I was taught this when I was young, and I don't even know where it came from, but, um, but um, most of you can probably, who are my age or older, will remember this. But it was this thing we used to do when we were kids. Like They said, this is the church. Remember this? You guys remember this? This is the steeple. Open the door and see all the people, right? Well, the problem with that was that nice rhyme, nice hand motions, totally wrong. I had this really nice thing to say that people could remember that was wrong. This is not the church. This is not the church. The church has always been the people. Somebody redid that, but it really didn't work because it just it wasn't as memorable as the wrong thing. The wrong thing was so cool. I mean, I haven't done that in 40 years, and I can still do it, maybe longer. It's memorable, but the wrong thing was seared into my brain. How many of you say this? Because I say it too. I'm going to go to church on Sunday. If you're saying you're going to church on Sunday and you're thinking of a place, or you're thinking of a service, you got the wrong idea about going to church. We don't go to church in that sense. If you were thinking, I'm going to church, and what I mean is, is that all my brothers and sisters in Christ are gathered there, and I'm going to be with them, the church, good, got it. But let's be honest. Most of the time when we say we're going to church, we don't mean that. We mean this building, or we mean the worship service, or we mean something other than the people. The church is the people. The church has always been the people. Remember the, in Acts, when the church is first meeting, they don't have buildings like this. They're meeting in people's homes. There's one place in Acts where it talks about where Paul had become so popular in an area that, that he, he teaches in a lecture hall. But this kind of thing, this is a modern thing, a new thing. The church is the people. And you might go, well, you know, yeah, I get it. I mean church, and I mean the, you know, I mean the people, but, you know, but this is a convenient way of speaking. Yeah, it's a convenient way of speaking. And it's okay to speak that way, as long as we keep in mind that it's really not the church. Because I think when we forget that the church is the people, then when we start hearing messages like, what is a healthy church? We start thinking not about us as human beings, and us as Christians, and us as having relationships with each other. Because ultimately, a healthy church is based on people who have a healthy relationship with God and a healthy relationship with each other. I don't care how full this building is. 
I don't care how big it is. I don't care whether today the AC is so nice because there's not as much humidity or like last week when we're sweating. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what time of day. It doesn't matter the programs. It doesn't matter anything. None of that is the church. The church is the relationships that we have with God and the relationships that we have with each other. That's where our focus should be. We want to know how healthy we are, how healthy are our relationships. If you go, well, again, that's not the Christianity I was sold when I bought Christianity years ago. The salesman told me it was all about just getting right with God so I could go to heaven. And the deal was I would be, you know, generally a good person. And, you know, I'd come to church once a week. That was the deal. Pastor, stop changing the deal on me. That's the old switch and bait. You know, you got me in the door telling me, here's this great deal, and then, oh, but this is what you're really buying. Oh. You may feel that way. You may feel that that's not what I've been told for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You may feel that way, but what I'm telling you is not the deal that I made up today. It's the deal that's been in God's word for 2,000 years. It's the deal that was in God's mind before the creation of the world. So if you have an issue with this, it's not an issue with me. It's an issue with God. How healthy are our relationships to one another? How well do we know one another? How much do we care about each other? How much do we think about how we can, we can serve one another? How, as we talked about humility, how we can set aside our own interests for the interests of others? How deep does that run? How strongly does that connect us? That's ultimately what it means to to be a healthy church. So when I'm talking about service, when I'm talking about servanthood, like we talked about last week, I'm not simply talking about what we do here on Sunday morning or what we do when you look in the bulletin at our scheduled events. Serving one another, sure, we need to do those things. We need to be a part of those things. We need to participate and help. But I'm talking about more than that. I'm talking about meeting the needs of each other throughout the week. And some of you might be going, well, I don't have any needs. I'm good. Just leave me alone. Well, first of all, you probably are lying to yourself. You might not think you have needs, but we all have needs. And by the way, if you do have it all together, come talk to me, because there's so many other people who need you, because you've got it all together, and you can help them. Servanthood, humility, not thinking too highly of, of ourselves, looking towards one another, looking for others' interests. It's the measure of a healthy church. It's something that happens every day. 
I was kind of convicted of this, and I shared this with the, with the, during the business meeting, the deacons meeting and everything, is that when we had our most recent hurricane scare, I'm going to be honest with you, it took me a long time before I started thinking about you. My first thought was, which, you know, I guess makes me a decent pastor, was the church building. How do we protect the church building? How do we make sure our equipment doesn't get damaged, our windows are covered? And so Stacy and, you know, was helping with a lot of this, and Cheryl and, and Jane and others, and, 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 you know, we thought, how do we secure the equipment? And a lot of our thoughts was, oh, if a Category 3 comes, you know, what's going to happen to this canopy? So I'm thinking of the building. And as soon as I finish thinking of the building, I start thinking about um, my own house and making sure, you know, we have enough spam to get through two weeks, right? I mean, that's, that's what I'm thinking of, my own house, making sure my own house is secure and, and my own family is taken care of. And it wasn't until after all that's done, I'm kind of thinking like, you know, in all this time, I never thought about people in our church, people who, some who live alone or are, have a hard time getting around. I never thought about them in that time. Not until later. We're trying to fix that. You know, we're trying to think now, even the deacons are talking about, what can we have in place to help us think? But you know what? We shouldn't need a program from the deacons to tell, tell us how to care about one another and to check in on one another and to make sure each other is okay. It should just be something we do because we love God and we love each other and we want to serve one another. It all matters. It all matters. And the other thing you need to, to think about when you think about healthy church, this service that we do here, this service, I didn't run the numbers, but this service lasts about an hour, 15 minutes. So it's around 1 20th of one day, of a week. So it's about 1 20th of one day out of seven days. And maybe somebody can do the math really fast, but I can tell you something. It's really, really small. It's a small percentage of, of the week. And if this is where you experience church, if this, which makes up probably less than 1% of the week, if this is where you experience church, if this is where 90% of your church experience comes from or more, you're not really experiencing church. If church is the people, if church is the people, we experience church all week with the people. If this is it, I can tell you, we're not a healthy church. If the vast majority of us only relate to each other and to the church during this service, we are not a healthy church if that's the case. It cannot just be here. A healthy church is a church wherever the church is, whenever and however. It's not just the formal programs. 
but it's those ministry opportunities, those relationship opportunities, those just hanging out with each other opportunities that are always there. And you go, wow. Seems like a lot. I think some weeks it is a lot. I think other weeks, not so much. But if we're going to be a church of living sacrifices surrendered to God, nothing is too much. You might go, but I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't. Well, that's why discipleship is so important. If you're so caught up in your own self, discipleship helps us be more like Christ, which brings that humility. And that humility, when we have the mind of Christ, we can serve, and we can serve for the right reasons. One of the things that I've been noticing more and more, and as a matter of fact, I I was on a website and I saw this news website and I saw this article, and the article said, five steps to loving like Jesus. And I thought, well, this should be good. I want to see how they have kind of gotten this down to one article. And apparently this guy had written a book. And the book was really, what I read in the article, was describing the love of Jesus, as we see in the Bible, describing it really well. But what I was looking for is that one thing, the thing that I've been telling you about again and again, and that is that, to really love like Jesus, that it's impossible. I wanted somewhere to see in there that, not that it's hard, not that it's difficult, not that it'll cost you everything, but that it's impossible to love like Jesus. I needed to see that. Didn't see it. I didn't see it, and I didn't see it, I think, for a good reason, because I think a lot of people now, more and more, are being drawn to the message of Jesus, at least part of it, the part about love. Because they they see how ugly the world can be. They see how ugly American politics, American culture, even sporting events can be. They see that, and and they look, or they hear about Jesus, about he says, love your enemies. And they go, that's better. Love strangers. Oh, that's better. Let's overlook our differences and unite in love. That's better. They're drawn to the message of Jesus. But here's the problem. They're not willing to pay the price. They're drawn to the love of Jesus because I'm going to tell you, when you see the love of Jesus just by itself, it's awesome. And when you see it next to what's going on in our culture and our world today, it's just like, this is a no-brainer. Of course I want this. But they're not willing to pay the price. And the first step is to say, it is impossible. Therefore, If I want this thing, if I believe this thing is better, it's right, it's the best thing, but it's impossible for me to have, 
then I either have to be incredibly frustrated or I have to humble myself. I have to believe that God, through Jesus Christ, made the possible impossible. I mean, made the impossible possible for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have to be willing to say that it's impossible for me to keep doing it even if it's the best that I can do. It's still impossible. That it is only possible if I come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the Christian message. The Christian message is this is how God wants the world to be. This is the awesome world. This is the kingdom. This is the perfect world. It's impossible unless you are changed. Unless you are no longer your own, if you continue to try to do it on your own, it is impossible. But if you will have faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ promises to send his spirit to make you new and make the impossible possible. And so the world, I think, is increasingly going to, to be drawn to the love of Jesus Christ. And you know what? I would rather them be drawn to the love of Jesus Christ and at least try to be more like Jesus, even though it's impossible, then continue down a path of being something other than Jesus. But I also know it's ultimately going to end in some kind of frustration. We have to be willing to pay the price. And so all that Paul has talked about in chapter 12 of Romans, all that we've been looking at, so many times in Paul's letter, so many times in, 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 in the New Testament especially, everything comes back to love. But understand this, you cannot go straight to love. We cannot do what the world wants to do and go straight to love. You cannot have the love of Jesus Christ unless you are willing to go to the cross. And so Paul, after spending all this time telling the Romans about the church of Rome, about how to live out their faith, he says this in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another and showing honor. A healthy church is a surrendered church, a discipled church, a humble church, a servant church, but it is a church of love. And not the world's love, but this impossible love, this impossible love that can only come from God. And when he says, let love be genuine, let love be genuine, he's He's using that word genuine to, to mean authentic, real, complete, perfect. Genuine love is always there. We might not always express love correctly, but if we're Christians, we are told that we have been made in such a way that we cannot help but love one another. 
If you say, that's not me, that's not me, there are people I just hate, then I have to ask you, do you really know what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you really know what it means to be changed and to be indwelt by his spirit? Because if you do, then you know that even though sometimes people make you angry, and even though sometimes you want to hurt people, that somewhere in there is this love that we have for them that we are fighting Anger, hatred, all of that that sometimes comes out is not evidence that we're not Christians. The evidence that we're not Christians is when it's not even a fight. When we can hurt other people and not feel anything. When we can treat other people like they don't deserve your forgiveness or they don't even deserve being talked to. And it's not even a fight. It's not even an internal struggle. We can do it so easily that hatred looks more like our natural instinct than love. If that's the case, I would ask you, do you really know what it means to follow Jesus Christ? Genuine love, authentic love, real love, it's always, and it's perfect. That's why it's impossible. I might be able to do the always, but I'm not going to get the perfect right. I can tell you that there's never been a second or day that since I've known Cheryl that I haven't loved her. But just go ask her all the times that I didn't do it right. You need to give yourself a few days, bring snacks because it's going to take a while. And maybe I thought I was helping. I thought I was showing love. I thought I was doing what was right. But I failed miserably. This says, let love be genuine. I like that. I like that. It's like, let love be genuine. It's like if I dumped water on you and I just said, let the water make you wet. What did you, what do you have to do? Nothing. When it's saying let love be genuine, I think there's this sense of if we're truly in Christ and we just let love be genuine, we just kind of get out of the way of love that we would just love because it's who we are in Christ. It's natural. It's like breathing. We don't force it. We don't try to create it. Just let it come, which tells me that, again, it's this impossible love that I cannot self-generate. Love, we've talked about it before. You want to love like Jesus? You really want to love like Jesus? All right. Don't just love the stranger, and don't just love the enemy. How about you love your enemy while your enemy is killing you? Why not love your enemy while your enemy is torturing you? Why not love your enemy while your enemy is threatening your family and everything that you hold dear? Love them then 
and then get back to me. It's impossible. We cannot do this on our own. The standard is it's not just too high. We can't even see it. It's so high. Genuine love. You see, we can be surrendered. We can be sacrificed when we have that kind of love. When we have that kind of love for God, we have that kind of love for each other. Because then, and only then, do we have things right. Because then, only God is sacred. Only his love is holy, and my love for him is holy. Nothing else matters. One of the things they tell you know, pastors when you go to a new church is you look, for, um, you, know, you look for the sacred cows. You look for the things that people have decided we cannot live without. If you take this, then you know, we will have no support for you. They say, look for those things. You know what? We shouldn't have to tell pastors that. Because we shouldn't have things in our church that are so sacred to us that if they were not here, we could not be a church. Other than the things that matter most. God, our relationship to God through Jesus Christ and his holy word. Nothing else should matter. I asked my Sunday school class today because we kind of got off on a tangent, but we drew it back. But the question was this, because we were talking about the persecuted church and other, you know, other parts of the world and how the persecuted church is often the growing healthy church. And let me ask you this question. Are you committed enough to be in a healthy church if it means that God has to bring persecution on this church? That we have to be threatened that it has to be dangerous to even drive up and walk through those doors. Are you willing for that? Are you willing to be a healthy church so much that, that it drives us underground so that we have to worship in private? Are we willing? Or are we just kind of surrendered uh, within reason? Oh, when we have this impossible love, You'll know surrender. You'll know living sacrifice. Because you'll do anything. You will say, God, whatever it takes. That's what we want. Well, he continues. He says, abhor what is evil. Those of you who have to take the SAT test, abhor. You guys know what it means, right? Whisper it to your parents. They probably have forgotten. Abhor. Detest. Hate. Deeply. There is no place for evil. Genuine love, authentic love, real love, does not, does not in any way embrace evil. If someone came... You know, let's say, um, you know, our church had taken out a mortgage and we were in debt. And then someone came to our business meeting and said, you know what? I can take care of that debt. 
Here's the conditions. Don't ask me how. Don't ask me how I'm going to take care of it. Just know it'll be taken care of. I wonder how many of us would be like, oh yeah, whatever, man. As long as when everything's done, you know, the problem's taken care of. Don't, don't, don't tell us how, we're good. I think sometimes that's what happens. We, we, we look for something that's effective, and as long as we're not doing it and it somehow helps, we kind of look the other way. Genuine love says no. It hates evil. It will not use evil. It will not celebrate evil. Back when I was a, more of a crazy sports fan, you know, there was always that guy on the other team that played a little dirty, or maybe played a lot dirty, and you hated them when they were on the other team. And then he gets traded to your team. And he didn't suddenly become a saint. He didn't suddenly stop throwing elbows and, and kneeing people and, and hurting people. He didn't suddenly stop doing it. But all of a sudden, you're like, oh, that guy's awesome. Because my team's winning and he's on my team. Really. Genuine love does not celebrate evil, even when evil leads to good ends. Genuine love will not use evil. And it will certainly not use evil to achieve its goals. You might go, well, what about God? Didn't God do that? Didn't God use, um, didn't he use these neighboring countries to bring judgment on Israel? Isn't that what the Bible says? Yeah, it does say that. And if you want to do that, you need to make sure you bring your resume and your resume better make really clear that somehow you have been or currently are God. And if you are, we might talk to you. Because God isn't necessarily using evil the way we would use evil. God's bringing judgment on a greater evil. Nowhere do if we have genuine love, can we say the ends justify the means? I used to hear people say this, and I hope you never say this to me. I'm usually pretty cool about it now, but in my head I'll be just like, but I've had people go, you know, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. And you know when they were doing that? They were doing that usually when they were doing something that they knew was wrong. But they were going to do it anyways. They thought it would, you know, get them to some end. They would justify something and they'd go, well, you know, it's easier to ask for forgiveness. It's easier just to do it, not communicate it, not talk about it, discuss it, just do it. And if you get caught, just say, oh man, I'm so sorry. That is not genuine love. It's not a healthy church. 
No ends to justify means. In fact, what does it say at the end of verse 9? Hold fast to what is good. Genuine love desires only to do what is good. And remember how hard that is. I've, I've told you guys this before, but, but when I was growing up, I loved like watching westerns. And the guy I never wanted to be in the rest, western was the pastor. Because the pastor in my mind when I was a kid was the stupidest person in the movies all the time. Because, you know, you might have like a bunch of, you know, bank robbers over here shooting their guns or guys that want to take over the town over here is the sheriff and all the good guys. Or sometimes it might be like, oh, you know, some kind of Native Americans and they're fighting against the cowboys. And, and, and what would happen? What would happen is at some point the pastor would stand up in the middle Let's have peace. And then arrows, gunshots, grenades, whatever. You know, some of the movies were B-movies. I'd be like, what an idiot. Stay down. You can say let's have peace and still hide. What are you doing? But you know now, now I look at that guy. And I admire that guy. Because even though the movie makers were trying to make him look like he was stupid, I realized that guy was standing up for what he believed was right and was good. And he wasn't going to celebrate violence. Good. Genuine love desires only to do what is good. You see, when we only desire what is good, it gives us the right motivation. We're not helping, we're not doing good like we talked about last week, so we feel better about ourselves. We're, we're loving and we're doing good because it's who we are in Christ. We are good doers. And the, the, the thing is that we want when you want to only do good, you will always want to do good in the best possible way. It drives everything. Genuine love holds fast to what is good. And again, this goes back to discipleship because how do you know what's good? How do you know what's good? Do you just get to figure it out, every situation, think about it? No, you know God's word. You study God's word. You understand as you are discipled, you have a deeper and growing sense of what good means. It's all tied together. He repeats the same thought again in verse 10. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. He, he wants to make sure we get it. It's not just love. It's not just a feeling that we generally have for humankind. But he's saying specifically, love one another in this church. If I wanted to have an awkward moment here, and you know, if this was maybe the fifth week of live streaming, I would do it. But I'm not going to ask you to do it. But here's what I would ask you to do. I would ask you to, to look around this room at every single person. You make eye contact. You look at every person in this room. And as you're looking at them, you ask yourself in the head, do I love this person? Do I love them? Or do I not? 
Genuine love. Genuine love. We don't just love some. We love all. And one of the ways we express it, it's that one time in the church, in the Bible, there's a couple, actually a couple of times, when Paul talks about competition. You know, sometimes I think the problem is, you know, too much competition. I, I remember growing up when I would, I would hear about, you know, one church talking about another church, like they were in competition. And even then when I was a kid growing up thinking that, I think like, aren't we on the same team? And I remember when I worked for Southwestern Seminary, I worked for the seminary, and one of our professors went to go be uh, the dean at another one of the Southern Baptist seminaries. And I was the news director, and so I, I called up the news director at the other seminary, and I said, I said, you know, we want to do a story on that. We want to do a story on our professor going over to be your dean. And the person was like, really? Really? You, you, would, you would do that? You would do something that makes us look good? And I remember the, the thing that I told this person was what I had thought for so many years. It's like, aren't we all on the same team? Aren't we all in the same kingdom? Aren't we all working towards the same goal? Why? Why? Should I not celebrate good things that happen to you? Well, many times competition is bad. It divides. But here, here, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. And what's implied there is showing honor to one another. It's like in the other verses where he talked about um, do things not out of your own interest, but interest to others. He's saying, in a healthy church, in a surrendered church, in a disciple church, a church that's humble and serving and loving, what you do is you, you look to outdo one another in how you honor one another. I have a phrase. Maybe you don't know what it means. Can you show it to them, Cam? Yudaman. Anybody know what this means? Yudaman. It's Yudaman. Yudaman. It actually is kind of this kind of slangy thing that came out of the 90s. And it became really famous in some movie that I never saw. But you would hear people, especially like if you go to golf tournaments or hear, watch golf tournaments, you'd always hear somebody, they, the, the professional hits the ball and the guy's, you're the man, you're the man. You the man. He's trying to honor him. But there's this famous scene in this movie. Again, I didn't watch the movie. I'm not going to give you the name. Don't recommend it. But there's, but there's, a, there's one, this guy's, one character's walking, the other character, and one guy goes, you the man. And the other guy goes, no, you the man. And then the guy goes, no, you the man. You the man. And they go back and forth. They're trying to honor one another by saying, you're the man. You're the one. And while it was goofy, it kind of made the point. It kind of made the point that, that, um, that I, I think about the problems I wish I had. 
as a pastor. Like, I wish I had people coming to my office and saying, man, you know what? Um, So-and-so, they really honored me the other day, and they sent me this card, and I want to honor them. Can you tell me how I can beat them? Can I honor them even more than they honored me? Somebody else saying, man, I saw that way, that guy honored that person. I want to honor them even more. They're not doing it out of selfishness. They're not doing it to be recognized. They're doing it because they know in a healthy church, we try to honor one another. You know what it means to honor one another? You know what it takes? It takes something that's sometimes really hard for us to do. To honor one another, we have to look at other people and not focus on what they're not and not focus on where they're weak and not focus where their failings are, but focus on the good that God has done in their lives. I think when we do that, we, we, we honor others. We, it's easier to honor somebody. I hope you realize that as a pastor, I'm not stupid and I'm not blind. I don't look at our church and think like, wow, this is the most perfect church God ever created in the entire creation of churches. In the dictionary next to church should be a picture of Wailai Baptist Church. I hope you don't think that that's how I am. I hope you also don't think that I sit around going, what a terrible place, what a terrible church, what terrible people. I hope you don't think that either. What I hope you think is that I look at you and I don't look at what you're not. I look at who you are, who God has made you to be, and then I look to the future with hope of who God is calling us to be and wants us to be and desperately is trying to make us to be. Oh, when I think like that, all I can think about is how can I honor these people? How can I, what do I need to do in my own life to be better? And how can I help them? If I start thinking about the negative and the, and the weaknesses, I only think about the negative and I only think about the weaknesses in terms of how can I help, how can I make it better? That's what we all need to do. We should always seek to honor others. We should always look at somebody else when they've taught that Sunday school class and you just want to say, you the man, you the man. Or someone did the ministry at Kahalanui or brought you some food when you were sick and your loved ones are in the hospital. And all you want to say is, you the man. We don't do it. We don't do it to be recognized. 
In fact, some of the greatest ways we honor is when no one knows that we have honored. You know, when Stacy wrote this song, you want to honor her? Sing it. Learn it. Someone is your Sunday school teacher or Bible study teacher, you want to honor them? Show up. Pay attention. Learn. Challenge them, push them, help them to grow. Big and small ways we can honor. It's not to be noticed. It's simply to love. And it always goes back to the same reason, the same purpose. It's always the same. We don't do this so that we have a nice place to come to. We don't do this so that we have a nice group of people that we can identify with. We don't do this so that we have a family here on earth. We don't do it for any of those reasons, even though all those reasons are wonderful. We do this because when we do it, the world will know that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, and that those who have faith in Jesus Christ, that he will change them in a way that they can reveal God in this world in how they live and love each other. It's the reason. It's not our purpose. It's not just our happiness, our goodness, our purpose, our joy. It is God's kingdom purpose. And so as we pray, we pray simply that, that God would love through us in such a real and powerful way that the world cannot help but see him in us.